Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Support for MPB comes from Fondren's First Thursday this Thursday, March 2nd, beginning at 5 p.m. A community event presenting the State Street Concert Series. More details at fondrensfirstthursday.com. Good morning, it's 8.30. In for Karen Brown this morning, I'm Kevin Farrell. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, an immigration advocate is under arrest and could face deportation. Hear what she told us moments before her arrest. At this point, some days I wake up with strength and some days I wake up and I just feel hopeless. Um, By January, I'd like to go back to college and I wanted to be a math professor, so I'm going to get that going still. Then lawmakers are still trying to find a way to tackle road and bridge improvements this legislative session. All that in this week's book club. It's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Daniela Vargas is a dreamer, a common term used to describe a student whose parents brought her to the country at a young age. She's been in college under the DACA program, that's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Her DACA status has expired, but she is in the process of renewing that status. We first spoke to Daniela Vargas after her father and brother were arrested by immigration officials weeks ago. Yesterday, she was at Jackson City Hall, where she participated in a press conference in support of immigrant rights. She was arrested by immigration officers after the event, but not before speaking with MPB's Desiree Frazier. She gave us an update on her family. Um, our dad and brother are in Louisiana at the detention center, and they're i mean, they're still waiting for deportation. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, it'll be in the next two to three weeks. Uh, could be a little longer, but not, not too much longer. Have you been able to talk with them? Um, I, I, I usually speak to them every day. Well, that's better than you thought because at the time you didn't think you'd have any contact with them at all. I am getting phone calls, so it does it does make me feel better. When we spoke, you didn't know what you were going to be doing in the next 30 minutes. What has it been like for you since then? Where are you staying? Um, I've been staying with my girlfriend. I have also been staying with other friends, just moving around a little bit because I didn't feel very safe staying in one spot. But 30 minutes after that... You know, I was still a wreck, but as days went on, you know, the first three days, I, I, I kept waking up at 6.30 in the morning, having nightmares. Um, but, you know, it wasn't maybe until the fourth day that, I, that, that my sleep caught up to me. I hadn't eaten in three days either. At this point, some days I wake up with strength and some days I wake up and I just feel hopeless. What is your next move at this point? Um, at this point, um, well, I got my DACA receipt. And uh, I get my biometrics done in the next week on March 8th. So I'm very excited about that. What are biometrics? Uh, those are my fingerprints that I will be getting. After the fingerprints, the next step, usually you get your card in the mail. So whenever that gets here, I will be so, so happy. You're leaving Mississippi, though, you tell me. Yes, I'm leaving Mississippi. Um, I'm not sure on everything yet, but it, it does look very bright at this point. What are your future plans? Um, by January, I'd like to go back to college, 
and I wanted to be a math professor, so I'm going to get that going still. Daniela Vargas with our Desiree Frazier. Moments after this conversation, Vargas was arrested by immigration officers. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has not commented on these developments. The whereabouts of Daniela Vargas are unknown. Bishop Joseph Kopaz of the Catholic Diocese of Jackson says he's very concerned about anti-immigration efforts in Mississippi. In particular, he says legislation that could support the outing of college students who are undocumented sends the wrong message. Bishop Kopaz joins us to talk about how the church and the public at large should approach the immigration issue. We have so many people here. They've been here and, and of course, the southern rim of the country, many, many Hispanics. But throughout the nation, we have people from every country who have come and overextended their visas. The reality is complex, and we could, you know, look at this issue in more ways than we're just going to follow the law. Well, the problem is, in many people's minds, and I agree in in many ways, is that the law needs to be looked at. Our immigration laws that are ineffective, they're not really serving the nation. They're not serving people who who come here and uh, make a contribution and and, in many different ways. And so how do we help that to work for us? Because it is working for us unofficially. And that is people are here working in many industries. And without them, it's like, uh, I'm not quite sure what these business folks are going to be doing. I mean, a lot of these jobs, Americans aren't looking for. And yet that's a claim. Would you go as far to say that the law should be disobeyed? No, the, the problem is it is being disobeyed because it's not the laws are not good. So this is not working. People come. We, we are a nation that draws people from all over. We do have laws that speak of visas and temporary work um, possibilities like migrants. You know, they come and they're working in the field. And that, that's why they've come. And so in that sense, looking at that, how do we make that work for us rather than saying it's probably this cat and mouse game. It's what's happening where you... Uh, you kind of look the other way until there's a raid, and then you have to haul those folks out and bring in new people. And if there weren't jobs available, if companies and businesses weren't hiring immigrants, then maybe they wouldn't come? It's true. When we have a downturn, immigration from Mexico, for example, trickles. In fact, in recent years, more went back than came. And you read that and you think, whoa, it's economically driven on the one hand. On the other hand... You have the uh, reality of uh, that's so bad for people in so many locales throughout Central America because of the uh, violence, the drugs, and all that. So people are running for their lives too, and and so, and we recognize that to a certain point that we like unaccompanied refugee minors. We do open up and and process young people in our country in that way. I think it's fair to say that the Catholic Church is a conservative institution. How is your position on this received? We are in in, uh, some ways, but I think the Catholic Church in uh, other ways is very progressive. And I think in this area, we we really have, uh, we're a church of immigrants, uh, and maybe more so than many other religious denominations. But still, when you look at all of the tapestry of nationalities and races in the Catholic Church. We we want to uphold the dignity of the person and also family life. Do That's, you think it's strictly a political move? You know, both parties have had their chance in Washington and in uh, state at state levels. And so it's political in the sense that there has to be a political solution here, uh, 
or a continuing development of the political reality so that our laws can, uh, again, uphold, uh, you know, serving people well and, and serving our best interests, our commerce, our our economy, you know, and part of the political struggle, I think, is either party, you know, the immigration reality is is helping a lot of businesses and so on. So one on the one hand doesn't want to get the wages too far up here. So we got this good help. And uh, I'm not saying they're totally uh, abused or doing work that's, you know, undignified. They're not going down into mines without lighting and air and, you know, but it's still you could take advantage. Uh, some businesses, others and they love the work ethic of our of our immigrant population, you know, and they show them papers. But, you know, a business owner doesn't can only say, OK, these are papers. They're not obligated by law to check uh, to see if they're really, really valid. But when there's a raid, I've talked to a couple of people, my best workers. And you don't know how hard it is to get workers. But right now it's it's all under the it's so much of it's underground. In his address to Congress, President Trump announced the creation of an office that he calls Voice Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement. Your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Those who are, uh, you know, if someone's here and, you know, is a felon for a serious crime uh, and you're you're here without papers or, again, if there were provisional papers, you know, their prosecution and, and deportation has to be a part of it. I know that's where the law is important. We have to protect our our citizenry. And and this isn't only President Trump. Uh, President Obama sent back more than any administration combined. That was done, and not not a lot of people know that. His Department of Homeland Security and ICE and so on were active as any administration. So on the one level, some were invited to come into the light with, you know, the deferred action against children. But on the other hand, many were sent back, most of whom were not criminals. So it's it's a contradiction. So well, how do we approach this in an honest way with uh, in, in a substantial way? Because they'll be coming under walls, over walls, around walls, they'll be coming by land, air, and sea. You can't stop that because the desperation is is so great. Lawmakers are still trying to find a way to tackle road and bridge improvement this legislative session. We'll have an update next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join me each Thursday for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Each week we talk with you about the health issues that are facing your children. From acne to concussions to diaper rashes and tonsils, from potty training to allergies to braces, and everything in between. It's Mississippi's free weekly pediatric clinic on the radio. Listen to any of our episodes on demand through the MPB Public Radio app and online at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell. State legislators are still trying to find a way to address the state's widespread issues with failing infrastructure this legislative session. A bill that would have required online companies to collect sales taxes from Mississippians was killed in the Senate this week. Other funding mechanisms involving tax hikes have been rejected by both houses in recent years. Democratic Senator Willie Simmons is a chairman of the Senate Transportation Committee. He talks with MPB's Mark Rigsby about what the Senate can still do to address roads and bridges. The only thing that we have is what the House sent us with the bond in it, which is not adequate enough or enough in order to take care of it. We really need about 300 to $350 million a year, and we don't have a mechanism in place to put that in. However, 
we can do anything in the legislative session uh, until we sign it down. So there's a possibility that we would do it. The lieutenant governor has indicated that uh, he feels the need that we must do something. We just haven't been able to come up with a mechanism to actually put in the kind of money that's needed in order to take care of our bridges and highways. Were you disappointed at all on the Senate side of things that the Senate did killed the bill for the Internet sales tax that would have raised money for roads and bridges? Well, the Internet sales tax, uh, when that idea came along, uh, is looked upon as being a possible way of doing it. However, when you really look into the Internet sales tax uh, with the legal ramifications that's hanging around it, we can give false hope. And what we don't need to do in this situation is to create false hope among the citizens living in the state and put something in place that's going to be in court or will not allow us to access dollars. We need to access monies immediately. And the best way of doing that is to look at a number of things where dollars can come into the system quick, fast, and in a hurry so that the Department of Transportation can start the process. But if we do something that's going to delay money's coming in, and we're only talking about $100, $150 million and giving false hope, that's not the solution to it. The MEC is calling for something to be done this year, 2017. What is the reality? The reality is that 174 members of the legislature have to come to our census and say to the leadership, uh, I spoke to the speaker, and he told me that anything significant he doesn't have about 40 votes. I talked to the lieutenant governor, and he tells me that we don't have the votes. And I've talked to members. There are members, both Republican and Democrats, who do not support raising monies for highways and transportation. We, the legislators and the citizens of the state of Mississippi, need to step up to the plate and say to the leadership that we understand what the business community is saying. They're willing to pay, and they recognize that they need bridges and highways in order to maintain a good economic system in the state of Mississippi. We, the legislators, need to step up and begin to say that we are willing to bite the bullet and raise the taxes. We can't put it on leadership and say leadership won't do it. Leadership knows that this is a process and there are 174 members of the state legislature. If we are not willing as legislators to say to the leadership that we want to do it, it's not going to happen. Senator Willie Simmons is a Democrat from Cleveland who chairs the Senate Transportation Committee. Representative Jeff Smith, a Republican from Columbus, chairs the House Ways and Means Committee. He talks with MPB's Desiree Frazier about how infrastructure can be addressed on the House side. That is a question about sort of like Jonah getting swallowed by the fish. Um, I think we'll probably go home being able to contribute some money. And when I say roads and bridges, we're talking about maintenance. You know, we've got a pretty good vehicle for new construction. That came about 1987 and 95. But we don't have uh, maintenance uh, money right now. It's going to have to come from revenues, obviously. We don't have enough existing money. We can, we can do some reorganization, and the Senate's taking a lead in that, and we can save some money. But we probably need somewhere over $100 million a year probably to do some maintenance on roads. And quite frankly, the south, southern part of the state needs it more than the northern part because we were the last area that was four-laned. And there are a lot, and, and uh, my counterpart, Mr. F Senator Fillingame, could tell you 49, Highway 49 is in dire need. But uh, with all that being said, I'm not here gloom and doom. We, uh, as long as we're in session, you know, Will Rogers said, when the legislature's in session, it's sort of like giving a small child a hammer. You know he's going to do some damage, just how much. 
So we're going to do something. It's just how much are we going to do? And uh, I have faith. Uh, the, the Senate and the House work well together. We pick on each other, but we love each other. And I think at the end of the day, with, with, with the lieutenant governor's leadership and the speakers, I think we'll come up with a method, and it won't be the lottery. <laughs> that was my question about the lottery as well. The, the the lottery just doesn't, you know, we have voted in the House two or three times in an amendment to a bill, but we had a chance, I guess, two and a half weeks ago for a straight-up vote on the lottery, and it failed. So I don't think a lottery is probably the answer, unless it starts some sort of grassroots movement back home. Uh, I'm a Baptist, and Baptist and gaming go together about like Baptist and whiskey. They don't really mix very well. And uh, I just don't see the lottery being our answer. We don't have any projections of what it would bring in or what it might take away from gaming, which uh, Senator Fillinggame and I weren't here to vote against. <laughs> what about education? Uh, we don't have a bill yet for education this year. Well, in all honesty, I, the leadership, the, the, the lieutenant governor and speaker, there is a plan, and it is just a matter of the governor calling a special session. We learned under Haley Barber that you can call a special session within a session, and I think the governor's plan is to, when our deadlines pass, these deadlines that are coming up right now, we'll have a little bit of a break, 10 days or so, and he may well call a special session, but we have a plan. Everybody thinks that we don't. Can you tell us about the plan? I can just tell you it's going to be wonderful. Like like uh, President Trump says, it's going to be great. It's going to be the best ever. It's going to be better than what we have now. I will promise that. Representative Jeff Smith with our Desiree Frazier. A new book looks at the doctors of the civil rights movement. That's next in the book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Think Radio goes off the beaten path with diverse perspectives and award-winning content, attracting an audience who appreciate honesty and value. Sound familiar? Reach your target audience with an MPB underwriting credit. For more information, go to mpbonline.org. Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. In for Karen Brown, I'm Kevin Farrell. A new book from author John Dittmer examines civil rights in Mississippi's health care system during 1964's Freedom Summer. Dittmer writes about how Dr. Robert Smith recruited a handful of doctors from New York City to come to Mississippi to treat activists. John Dittmer joins us in this week's book club. The Medical Committee for Human Rights was formed in early in the summer of 1964. Now, this was the famous Freedom Summer in Mississippi, where upwards of a 1,000 white volunteers came down. And some black doctors, particularly Dr. Robert Smith, who was key to the story, felt that these civil rights workers would not be able to get good treatment from white doctors, and there were only a handful of black doctors. So they sent out the call to New York, where Bob Smith had some contacts, and a group of physicians, most of them Jewish liberals, decided to come down at the invitation of the civil rights workers and to spend the summer and to provide health care for these movement people. Was Bob Smith the only black man of the group? 
No, there were a number of blacks, but most of the original founders were uh, from a very small group of uh, left-wing physicians in New York City. How many were there originally? There were about, at the early meetings, there were about uh, 15 to 20 people. From that point on, the movement spread throughout the country. But the original group was, was quite small, although when they sent out the call, upwards of 100 people, uh, not all of them doctors, some of them nurses, med students, social workers, had come to Mississippi for a week or two that summer. Give us a sense of what happened when they arrived. Where did they go? Did they set up office somewhere? Well, they, they met, first of all, with Bob Smith, who gave them an orientation. Most of these docs knew nothing about Mississippi and uh, were quite naive. So after this orientation, they would go around to the various COFO projects in the state in places like Hattiesburg and Greenwood and Macomb, and there they would get to know the people. I should say something, though, that they came down thinking they were going to practice health care, but the Mississippi public health officials would not give them licenses. So they had to be content with what was called first aid, which was legal under the circumstances. But some of them were threatened with disbarment if they did do their jobs. Did they come with supplies or were those provided when they got no, here? No, they came down with their black bags. It was not that they were going to set up a big medical operation, but they mainly just were working in these projects with the usual things that people had, chigger bites and fever and things like this that were bothering them. Some of them, however, were more serious and they were referred to local hospitals. Was there a problem admitting those who were injured, seriously injured in some cases, to local hospitals? As you may know, the Mississippi hospital situation like that in most of the Deep South was strictly segregated. In fact, blacks were not permitted in some hospitals. In the cases of serious incidents, they were usually admitted, but sometimes even these instances met with violence as in Hattiesburg, when they took a civil rights worker to a white doctor's office, and he was immediately set upon by a mob and beaten because they knew he was going to be there and laid sort of an ambush. But for the most part, they were able to work efficiently. John, how were the doctors treated? Did other doctors resent them being there? Yeah, there's an incident early on, and you can understand, there was a letter that was sent out by Robert Coles, who later became a very famous psychologist, and he sent out a letter to all the white doctors in the state, and it read, Dear Doctors, and then it talked, said about all these civil rights workers were coming down, without mincing words, called upon their Mississippi colleagues, whatever their social or political abuse, to obey the Hippocratic Oath. And they helpfully quoted the relevant passage for their Southern brethren and ending the letter with the sincere hope that a clear separation between social upheaval and medical need will be maintained. Well, you can imagine the reaction of white doctors being lectured by a group of outsiders who had never been in the state. And when the docs got down, they said, no, the letter is not about us. But that presented a problem wherever they went, because part of their role, they wanted to talk to white doctors and to try to get them to change the segregated style of medicine, both in their offices, which were rigidly segregated, and in the hospitals. They were ineffective in doing this. Were there any doctors who were injured? There, was, uh, there were no doctors who were injured per se. In fact, one of the things, the valuable things that they did was to provide medical presence. Whenever there was a demonstration or a march, 
there would always be a doctor there or a nurse, and they were all dressed in white coats with their Red Cross armbands and carrying their bags, and it was sort of an adult presence that did not ensure the safety of demonstrators, but people would think twice before attacking them. John Dittmer is the author of The Good Doctors, The Medical Committee for Human Rights and the Struggle for Social Justice in Healthcare. John, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, join me for Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's MPB Season Pass. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? You can find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app in any mobile store. I'm Kevin Farrell. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.